Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings. You know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but its Amarillo store is independently owned and operated by the Hawkins family who live right here in town. And here's the thing, they offer a lot more than just recliners. Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings has a ton of products in stock right now. They're ready to take home or deliver today. Go visit the Lazy Boy of Amarillo showroom today at 3636 Sansi. That's Lazy Boy of Amarillo at 3636 Sansi. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Amarillo College and to Ascension Academy online at ascensionacademy.org. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com or pick it up on local newsstands. It's the one with all the queso on the cover. It's a super fun issue. I'm proud of this one, so go grab one. Today's guest is Patrick Swindell. Patrick is a local bankruptcy attorney with the Swindell Law Firm, and he's been working here in the Panhandle for more than 40 years. But as we discuss in this conversation, there's a lot more to his identity than just the legal side of things. For one, Patrick is a prominent local jazz musician, and he's the leader of the Esquire Jazz Band. He and his wife, Ronnie, were the owners and founders of the Esquire Jazz Club. Now, this club closed before the pandemic, but it was a major component of the revitalization of Polk Street a few years ago. We really loved going there. He started the Music at Wellington Square Summer Concert Series, which continues through this month. And he's also one of the founders of Ascension Academy. Patrick continues to serve, actually, as the chairman of that prep school's board of directors. So we cover a lot of really diverse territory in this episode. But I think you'll find all the different topics really interesting. So here's Patrick Swindell. Patrick Swindell, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's an honor to have you. I know that we've got a lot of directions that uh, we could take our conversation, but I want to start the same way I start with all my guests, and that's just to ask why you're here in Amarillo. So what brought you to this area? Well, I'm actually born and raised in Amarillo, Texas, and lived here all my life, with the exception of about five years when my family moved to Hereford, okay, and that's where I graduated from high school. And uh, my closest friends to this day are the people that I established friendships with there. In fact, had a meeting last night with about five of them. We try to meet every Tuesday for a little happy hour. Okay, that's great. Yeah. With high school friends. Yes. That's, yeah. that's cool to stay connected like that. What Do you know what brought your family to this area in the first place? That's a good question. I, I would just say that... You know, my my parents and their siblings and their fam- their immediate families lived there here all of their lives as okay. well. And uh, and and you know, as as we all became more mobile and and they move all have moved away or are now deceased, leaving me here. Okay, as the as the one and only Swindell in that in that family that's that's still here. I was drawn back to the community because of my memories of childhood and family and all that whole thing and uh, had opportunities after graduated from law school to go anywhere that I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. But I was dead set on coming back here. Okay. And of course, I married an Amarillo girl and you know, gra- she was a graduate of Amarillo High School and we've been ma- married now for just under 49 years. Okay. that Congratulations on that. That yeah. makes it easier to come back though when... when- both members of the relationship are, are happy about that, that and drawn yeah, to the that's place. Right. Tell me what when when you graduated from high school, 
Did you know that you wanted to go into law? Like, did you have an idea of what your future would be? It's been my dream to to be a lawyer since I was in the fourth grade. I remember okay. vividly watching uh, Perry Mason on television, you know, back in the late late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. And uh, I just thought, you know, that that's what I want to do. Now, I didn't end up practicing like Perry Mason. I'm not sure I know anybody really has, but... <laughs> Uh, you didn't become a TV lawyer then? No, no, no. But uh, that's what I've, I've wanted to do that ever since I was in the fourth grade. You, you probably created a generation of attorneys. That oh, show did. It probably so, yeah. Where did you go to school after you graduated from Hereford? I went to Texas Tech the okay. first uh, year and a half of undergraduate and began this uh, relationship with my current wife there at Tech. She transferred to WT. And it was a good move on her part because mm-hmm. the business school at WT was way ahead of Texas Tech at that time. Interesting. Of course, WT is older than Texas yeah. Tech by quite a bit. And uh, so I followed her and uh, graduated from uh, West Texas at that time, West Texas State University, and then went to, to law school at Texas Tech. Okay. How did you decide what type of law you wanted to practice? Because I know there comes a point where, you know, you got to go to law school and um, maybe you graduate and you, you sort of carve out, you know, what you're going to do. And I know it looks different for, for every attorney I've spoken to. So what did that path look like for you? Well, I, you know, I thought I wanted to get into litigation uh, from, the, from the very beginning. Oddly enough, though, when I got my license and, and moved back to Amarillo, uh, the very first case that was handed to me was litigation in, a bankruptcy, in the bankruptcy court. Hmm. It fit me. You know, it satisfied the, the need to do a little bit of litigation, but it also satisfied. There's something about uh, the bankruptcy work that I do, commercial and consumer uh, bankruptcy work, that fits my personality. I'm the kind of person that has a list of things that have to be accomplished, mm-hmm. and I'm not very patient, so I want, I want them to be done yeah. so I can move on. And uh, bankruptcy is very fast-paced. I mean, it has deadlines that have to be met. And, and you know, you're, you're not hanging on to a case in, lit- in litigation uh, for years as it, you know, discovery and, right. and all of the things that go along with it, delay and postponements, it really don't happen in bankruptcy. Okay. The system won't allow it. So, Did yeah. you work for a larger firm when you first started? I, I worked for a small firm. Okay. And... Uh, Never was drawn to the big firm. At one point in my practice, in my bankruptcy practice, I I was the just about the largest bankruptcy firm in the state. Uh, I had six offices across the state: Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth, Wichita Falls, and Amarillo. Mm-hmm. And for about fifteen years, I was traveling almost every day to those offices where I had attorneys that worked under me and staff in every one of those cities. And I remember one day after that, doing that for about 15 years, I got home late on a Friday night, like always, and my wife you know, met me at the airport and said, is this going to be forever? Huh. Or how much longer are you going to do this? And so I sold the other offices, okay. closed a couple, and and uh, focused back back home again, just here. And I'm just as busy now as I was then. I'm just not leaving town yeah. to do it. How long was how long ago was it when you made that decision? It's been about eight years. Okay, actually. So 
Yeah, it's been a, it's been a while, but uh, I've not regretted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, and, and particularly currently, I'm I'm just as busy as I've ever been. Yeah. Tell me about the, I guess the client side of bankruptcy because it seems like one of those specialties where the people who are going through bankruptcy proceedings like it's it's never a real good thing you know and so they are in you know maybe a a low place whether it's their business whether it's their personal life does it feel to you like like you're coming in to sort of help them through it i mean is is there that component outside maybe the the legal ramifications of it you're dealing with people who are are struggling in a way oh absolutely i I think I do, uh, you know, the, the true attorney and counselor, uh, I do that all the time with these people because I know, I know what they're going through. Mm-hmm. I've seen it enough. I've handled thousands of cases in my career, and it, it is probably one of the hardest decisions for someone to make. I know there's lots of beliefs and, and uh, thoughts of other people who aren't going through it, who maybe know somebody, a neighbor or a family right. member, and they think, oh boy, they're just, this This is too easy. They're, you know, they run their credit cards up, now they're walking away. I, It is emotional, it, devastating. It's a feeling of failure and and guilt and uh, a, a thought that, you know, that they've lost the respect of anybody and everybody that knows them and all of those things. And they're, it's pretty difficult. It really is. I mean, that's uh, I, I keep uh, tissues, boxes of tissues mm-hmm. on my desk, on the conference table, in the reception area for that very reason. It's not unusual for somebody to break down in my office. And yet for them, I think in a sense, as I understand it, it, it kind of represents a, a wiping the slate clean, a, a way to start over that there's there's hope on the other side of it. And so you're oh, absolutely you're going through this, you know, this valley with them, but but there's an opportunity to sort of climb out on the other side. Is that how you look at it? Yes. I mean, it's a it's truly a fresh start for many people. Interestingly enough, in with uh, the pandemic and the the situation that all stemmed from that 20 and 20, 21, 22 and halfway through this this year. Mm-hmm. We've had the lowest number of bankruptcy filings since 1984, which for those of us in the business, we thought it was going to be, you know, a a bumper crop, so to speak, of bankruptcy filings during that time. But with all of the stimulus that was handed out and the uh, deferment of mortgage payments, car payments, and and all of the PPP money and the ERC money that was just being handed out to everyone. All they did was really just kind of kick the can down the road or, or dig the hole deeper, so to speak, because uh, about started probably about six months ago, kind of the floodgates are starting to open. Okay. And I'm, I'm seeing anywhere from three to six new clients every single day. Wow. Yeah. So it, it didn't necessarily prevent bankruptcies. It just sort of forestalled them a, a little bit. Yeah, that I mean, safety net sort of caught some people, but then it, right. it only lasts for a while. Right, and and for those people, small business owners, you know, farmers, dairy workers, and that sort of thing, you know, it all all really it did it. Filing a bankruptcy doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to make your business profitable. If it wasn't profitable before, chances are yeah. 
chances are pretty slim that a reorganization bankruptcy, like through Chapter 13 or 12 or 11, is really going to be the magic cure to that business failure. What's the division of personal versus commercial clients that you have? Well, it's still largely consumer, what we call consumer cases, but probably, I thought about this not too long ago, I think probably about a fifth, 20% of my business are still commercial. Okay. And uh, trying to work through reorganizations or just, you know, we're shutting the business down. We yeah. need to let everybody know where the where the cards are. Yeah. You know, so that. I know you spoke about, you know, scaling your practice down uh, or, or maybe refocusing it a few years ago. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that, you know, you're on my radar as somebody to talk to is because I know that, that you've got. Uh, a lot of interests outside the law. You know, there, there's a lot of attorneys and they'll just work their 18-hour days and grind it out and that's all they do, but you've got some other things going on. Right. Uh, so I wonder if you can tell me, even before we get into the spe- specifics of it, just about kind of that balance, you know, as a member of a community, as a practicing attorney, as someone who's trying to have a life outside your office, how, you, how you've kind of approached that over the past few years. Well, uh, you know, I, I do have other interests, obviously, uh, and and kind of if, if I were to kind of focus on that, I mean, uh, having raised five children of our own, my wife and I, we were always involved. I mean, I was a scout leader, I was a cub master, I was I was a coach, um, and always involved with with our own kids and other people's kids, and and it was really that that part of my life that you know pushed me in a direction that led eventually to Ascension Academy here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and then I've always, uh, my children, probably through them, <laughs> my revival of an interest in uh, both music and theater and, and, and really an involvement in the arts and, and being involved, uh, fundraising pretty heavily for different nonprofit arts organizations here uh, over the past 15, 20 years, really. So that all, kind of all started with my my interest in and just love of, of children and and being involved in the things that they do Okay, and being drug along by them. Yeah, yeah, often that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. your, your kids kind of lead the show in some of those things. Okay, so you mentioned Ascension Academy, and I know that you were one of the uh, individuals at the very beginning who sort of got that ball rolling, who saw the need and said, let's let's do this thing. So tell me a little bit about that process and, and what your involvement was. Okay. Well, a- as we sit here today, actually, I'm celebrating the 30th anniversary of starting Ascension Academy, or at least the project okay. at that time of Ascension Academy. And so I, got, I gathered a group of uh, interested parents business people, people who had some financial means that, that might be able to help us get this off the ground, and educators, because while while I have an interest at that time, had an interest, I had no experience in school administration right. or being a teacher other than being a teacher from the, from the point of being a church a teacher okay. for adult classes. Yeah, Sunday school classes are right. not quite the same as no, uh, no, history no, classes, right? Not at all. So um, anyway, that that led to okay. Well, let's uh, let's hire WT's marketing department to do a survey for us, so we can kind of 
gauge the interest in that because, uh, you know, there, there weren't many uh, private schools at the time and, and still aren't. Mm-hmm. And most of them are church They're parochial, right. Yeah, they're parochial in nature. And we are, we're an independent school, which is, is a whole different animal. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't come with a parish or a, a diocese or something to support it financially which was a challenge from the very beginning. Yeah. But but we had a, a good group of people in the in the planning committee in the planning stages that reached out and brought other people in. And and so that uh, initially, you know, we needed a place and uh, I actually spent many many hours looking at uh, locations around the city and either you know barren ground uh, mm-hmm. or or uh, old buildings or that sort of thing in fact santa fe the santa fe building was offered to us really yes uh, well that would have been an interesting transformation well as i looked at it it was going to cost more to renovate it into a school than it would have cost just in what we've spent building from the ground up where we're at yeah and so it, it was that search and that um investigation and sit-down discussions with landowners. You know, initially it was, could you donate the land? Well, and then all of a sudden it kind of had turned into, well, we're looks like we're going to have to buy land. Yeah. Uh, until one day that I got a phone call from uh, Wendy Marsh, and uh, she said, uh, why don't you come by the house? And so I went by their, their house over at Toad Hall, and mm-hmm. they had spread out a map of, of their land holdings. And I was very familiar with all of the land that they were showing me. In fact, uh, when she called, I, there was one section in particular that I was very interested in, and uh, which is where we currently are located. And, uh, and that was that was kind of out way on the edge. Yeah, at, at the point. time there was nothing out there. Uh, this was like what mid nineties. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mid nineties, and uh, so. When I got to the house, they had the map spread out, and and, and uh, she asked me which land that I was interested in, and I would quickly went over and put my finger on that section, and I said, uh, I would love for you to donate 40 acres out of that section, hmm. uh, which is, by the way, the one of the southern sections of the Frank Pan Ranch. Frank Pan, Frank Pan Ranch. Ranch. Yeah. And so it's it's got a lot of history as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, it was just one of those things and 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 Wendy said, We'll do it. And uh-huh. uh, so that really gave us some credibility and mm-hmm. momentum and uh, we were able to get several large donations within that first couple of years. In fact, first couple of years we raised an equivalent of about two point six five million dollars in land and other properties okay. that were then sold uh, to raise money to continue that journey of planning and, and uh, you know, hiring some full-time employees. First one we hired was a director of development, uh, and they brought in Joe Poole, which was incredible. Yeah. Uh, Joe and his, and his family have they've made Ascension Academy happen. Actually, you know, I'd love I'd love to pat myself and the others around at the time on our backs, but it was Joe. Tell me about the need that you were trying to meet by establishing the school, because like you said, there were a lot of or at least there were some options for private schooling. Most were church affiliated. Mm -hmm. There wasn't 
you know, a, a prep school um, like Ascension mm-hmm. is. So tell, mm-hmm. me, tell me why you and the other parents thought this is something that we need. Well, we all kind of focused on what we wanted for our children, obviously, initially, and that was we wanted a, a classical education, faith-based, but very different from a parochial school. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not non-denominational. It is faith-affirming. And, uh, you know, the focus still is, is academics, but something that permeates throughout uh, at least our vision of it uh, was that we would affirm whatever faith they brought to the school. You know, we weren't going to uh, try to convert anybody. We were going to, and we weren't going to water down whatever beliefs they had. Okay. So we invited, for example, we invited different uh, teachers to come to teach the religious curriculum for a particular uh, group, faith group. So whether it be Catholic, Jewish, uh, Presbyterian, what what we kind of classified as liturgical Protestants, okay. non-liturgical Protestants. So a lot of thought went into this. In fact, uh, from the very beginning, I was having a hard time wrapping my mind around how how we do this faith-affirming thing. So I invited 20 pastors. Uh, now, not all of the pastors came. They might have sent their youth minister or whatever right. over to this meeting. But we met monthly at a coffee shop just off of... Uh, Coulter on 45th, interestingly enough, it was called Divine Grind. Okay. I don't know if you remember that. I do remember it. Okay. So we met there as a group monthly for a year and talked about how this would work. How how would we do the the worship services? And so, you know, it really came together pretty quickly, and, and I think it has been effective. I mean, of course, with the the community that that uh, that we now have and, and in large part due to the healthcare uh, industry here in Amarillo. We have, you know, we have Muslim children, mm-hmm. we have Hindu children, right. uh, we have Buddhist children. Those are very small numbers, obviously, uh, because we still have, I guess, about a 20, 20% of the student body are Catholic, and, a lo- and most of the rest of them are uh, Protestant. So that has worked out much better than I thought. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I thought, you know, this is, I'm, we're going to hit a brick wall on this, and it's probably going to happen in the first two years. And uh, oddly enough, we never hit a brick wall on it. Um, in fact, the brick wall in the first year became lunch. Hmm. I mean, that's, and if we're just worried about what food we serve in the in the cafeteria, right. I'm that's I'm That's manageable? We can handle that. Yeah. So you're still chairman of the board at Ascension, you know, 30 years later. Tell me how you feel about what it's become. Like, has this met your expectations? Has it grown beyond what you initially thought it could be? Well, I think it's exceeded the goals that I had in my mind. There were there were certain uh, meters or or uh, goals that that I had in mind mm-hmm. long term, and, and in fact, many of them beyond my own existence. And we reached, uh, almost three years ago, we were named a cum laude school, which, you know, for those who uh, are familiar with some of the private, some of the wonderful private schools in the state of Texas and around, I mean, we, cum laude means Hockaday in Dallas. It means okay. St. Mark's. It means 
Strake Jesuit in Houston, uh, St. Michael's in, in San Antonio. It's, it's really uh, a, a pinnacle that many schools, much older than Ascension Academy, have you know, strived for and just can't quite reach it. And, and that was, you know, had, had to do, obviously, with the academic side mm-hmm. and the accomplishments of our teachers, our faculty, and our students. Uh, so that was something that ca- came as a surprise to me, a uh, pleasant one. Yeah, and you're able to mark it off that list, that, right. the checklist that drives you, right? Yes. Well, we, and, you know, we, we had, we've had people involved that have brought to the table experience to get us to certain points. For example, uh, Dr. Mike King was the retired superintendent of the Canyon School District. He came on board as head of school to get us accredited as quick as possible. And we were accredited by uh, SACS and, uh, and SAIS within three years, which is, that's the soonest you can get accredited okay. in that process. He knew what needed to be done. He did that. And then he had built a number of school buildings uh, for the Canyon School District, and he knew what needed to be done there. And, uh, you know, he, he reached a point where, you know, he, he did what he did best, and we thank him for that because I'm not sure uh, we would have been up to that first level that quick. Okay. And then and then we hired after that as head of school. Well, Dr. Russell Long came on board as an interim sure. head of school. He had some experience. I yeah, guess. he did. He did. <laughs> and uh, he helped us buy time to do a nationwide search for a new head of school. And that's how we ended up with uh, Bill Summerhill. Mm-hmm. From Pennsylvania, from Wyoming Seminary in in Pennsylvania, came to us and stayed with us for just over eleven years, which is kind of unheard of in private schools okay. in terms of the tenure of a, of a head of school. Uh, but did a lot of wonderful things. Got us, you know, maintained our accreditation, increased our enrollment, firmed up our curriculum to be what Department of Education's uh, definition of college preparatory school. Okay. And, uh, and then, of course, the, uh, the accomplishments of our kids have been amazing. Yeah, those, those percentages, and I, I think the scholarship numbers I've heard are, mm-hmm. are pretty fantastic. Yeah, I you know, think it, it does for families here, yes, it's gonna, there's private school tuition, and... Uh, I don't apologize about that because it's it's an investment in their child if they are interested in pursuing a college prep education, mm-hmm. and it reaps enormous rewards. Uh, in the last two years, I've handed out a you know we've we've handed out in, in essence an associate's degree from Amarillo College, uh, along with. Uh, more than $100,000 in scholarship funds, and these kids start as either a sophomore or a junior wherever they go. Wow. So you get all of your money back in the first year. Hmm. My kids that graduated, my my children that graduated from Ascension, I got all of my investment in Ascension back in the okay. first year of their education. That's interesting. I want to pivot and talk about jazz, if if you're open to that, because well, I know if you insist, okay. <laughs> I, I know that people have have probably um, seen you perform. Maybe they went to Esquire Jazz Club when it was open on Polk, but but that's something that is is also a major emphasis uh, outside of your work life. So tell me about that. How how long have you been? Um, I, I guess playing music 
into music, that sort of thing? Well, I was uh, in a, uh, a rock band in, in Hereford in high school and uh, just enjoyed that so much. But, you know, when we left college, started thinking about law school mm-hmm. and career and families and all of that. And it was in, I think, probably 2000, I guess, right around there that my daughter, uh, Erica, was in, involved heavily at ALT and she was in the uh, Buddy Holly story that season okay. at the o- beginning of the season. And then they were going to do a show on Frank Sinatra and just kind of a, a medley of Frank Sinatra tunes. And I had actually been singing uh, at a restaurant that my wife and I were partners in with other people. And so I'd been singing there off and on. And so she said, Dad, you've got to go audition for this. And I said, well, I don't know, Erica. Really? I mean, I don't. And she said, Dad, you remember you've told all of us that we shouldn't waste our talents, that we should give our talents. Yeah. As a, so it was great so when the kids turn it back on you. Back right? in my face. So so I thought, well, I'll, I'll humor her. I'll go audition and I won't get the part. And I'll say, mm-hmm. well, I tried. Well, I got the part. And it was a show called My Way. And it was... Uh, of course, those tunes, I grew up listening to those tunes, the Rat Pack music and and the jazz, all the jazz just was a part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we had the big console stereo with the turntable, yeah. and, and my parents listened to all of that music. And I didn't realize, but it was planted there, and it kind of grew around 2000 because of that show. And so I began appearing at some of the local clubs and and restaurants, just piano and me and uh, singing. And then I, you know, I just, well, I just dreamed for a larger sound. So I started adding horns to that. Okay. And what's now uh, Esquire Jazz Band is a seven-piece band, including myself, three horns, uh, piano, drums, bass, and me. But even as a result of, of, well, that's what pushed us into Esquire Jazz Club. Okay. Because I wanted a venue where it, it's tough to to be a, a jazz musician and play in restaurants. Uh, inevitably, you're too loud. Well, the horns, you the can't. horns, you can't. There's no volume control on right. the trumpet. So uh, I just wanted a venue where all of these people, in fact, people from all over the globe, played at Esquire Jazz yeah. Club. I had people from Europe and Africa and uh, Jamaica, and and then all the regional talent. Uh, an opportunity to play that music primarily on, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. And I think it was enormously successful uh, in that we were at capacity on Fridays and Saturdays. It was hard to get in. It was almost like uh, the, the pandemic. It was like we sensed it or something because we decided to wrap it up in January of 2020. Yeah. It was right before yeah. And then lo and behold, the governor yeah. shuts them all down for a year and a half almost. So it was fortuitous, I think. Right. It was going to happen. So uh, we were able to kind of wrap things up a little bit. And and I did sell the business. It's uh, it's not Esquire Jazz. Right. Anymore. It's still a, a cocktail bar. Tell, tell me how you look back on that. Because when I think about Esquire Jazz Club, I, I feel like you opened around the same time that Crush and Six Car were either opening or being built. Like that was all kind of happening together exactly with everybody's positive thoughts about, ooh, Polk Street feels different all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. You go to dinner, there's a nice patio. You walk across the street, there's a jazz club. You know, it 
it was part of that renaissance downtown. And do you look back and, and feel, okay, this, this thing didn't last, but we were part of something really special that happened in Amarillo? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, some of my fondest memories, really, uh, of Amarillo will always be that jazz club that was only open two and a half years. But, it, you know, it was, f- for me, once again, going back to this this interest in the youth, um, it was an opportunity for us to nurture and uh, give performance experience to a lot of uh, college musicians yeah. from WT and Emerald College. And so the, the standard deal was, you know, they'd come to me, they're a trio, and uh, obviously they're very talented kids, but they lacked performance. It's like, it's the difference between, okay, I'm going to go record this in the studio and we're going to sell it that way, or I'm going to come and I'm going to do it live right. and I'm going to put on a show. And I tried to to uh, nurture those musicians. So I'd, I'd give them an opportunity and say, okay, tell you what, I'll let you play during happy hour. You can come in from five to six and play. And then when I think you're ready, then we'll, we'll move you to a, a main slot, okay. a headline slot. And uh, it was just amazing how quickly that occurred with these kids. Because they had the talent, but they were scared. Yeah, you know, oh my gosh, we're there's an audience out there that's listening to us, and you know, it it, it involved the whole deal, you know, the whole package of what you dress like, you know, how you address the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, it needs to be something a little more intimate. When since you're, you know, you're that close to them, they're they're 15 right. feet from you. Uh, so it was that part of it that I really enjoyed. And then we also we had some great nights there raising funds for. WT Music Department and, well, the whole School of Fine Arts, actually. So uh, that was good. And then, of course, I've continued that uh, at Wellington Square Courtyard Mm -hmm. during the summer. In fact, we just recently had a fundraiser that uh, for the WT Music Department that involved the band directors that were at the WT band camp. So we had band directors from Houston, from, you know, all over the state and other states that were teachers, faculty of the WT uh, band camp that came, 17-piece orchestra, and we raised about $3,200 just playing music that will go to WT, and they'll have that money unrestricted. Right. And what what that's used for, and this is something I'm proud of as well, because it's perfect for this. You know, it's not a huge amount of money, but there are kids who are graduating who have maybe their first generation uh, students, college students, and they need to go. They're wanting to get their doctor's degree somewhere else, or and they need some travel money. Right, but their scholarships won't cover that. Their families can't cover that. So they've used this, I believe, for the last five years that we've been doing it to help those kids do that, make that travel to go on with their education. It's doing something you love, having fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and raising money at the same time. Right. Can't beat that. The last thing I want to ask kind of ties all those things together because it, it, it's about your decision to come back to Amarillo, to start a practice in Amarillo. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with people who are professionals, who have found success in the professional world, but they've also got you know a very rich life outside of that. And for a lot of people who live in places like, I don't know, New York City or San Francisco, that just seems so foreign because your work just takes up everything. 
or getting to and from work takes up everything. Nobody has a life outside the office. Mm-hmm. And and yet you are an attorney, you're a jazz musician, you've owned a business, you've started a school, like you've done all these things. And I wonder how much of that you can attribute to where we live and what's unique about Amarillo that kind of gives you, I guess, the maybe the framework, the flexibility, the space to do all those kinds of things. I think that's right. I mean, we... We are still, and, and I don't apologize when I say this, we're, we're still a very close-knit community of people. I've got two kids that live in Brooklyn, and, and while they have friends and, and they're involved in their careers, beyond that, uh, you know, they're doing things too, but it's such, so much more difficult mm-hmm. to just even know who to talk to about how do I get involved in this. They're not starting schools or no, opening no. businesses. Well, and I'm glad they're not. <laughs> it's been a lot of work. It's been a labor of love, but it's, you know, it's. Uh, and I've tell people this all the time who ask me how how do you do what you do? I mean, it just it's 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 amazing. To some people, and I'm always surprised at that. Except that uh, I will tell you that uh, with the things that I have been heavily involved in, uh, it it has been a little bit like. Uh, swimming upstream, like I know how a salmon feels when it's mm-hmm. you know time that season uh, because I've I've felt like I've always been swimming upstream in everything I've done, and yeah, that's what makes it it's, it's exciting, sure, uh, and that's why somebody else hasn't already done it, mm-hmm. and you know some people may say, well, I'm just I, I just I'm too stupid to know when to quit. I don't know. Maybe they're right, but uh, I receive so much more back from those experiences. Uh, as I'm handing out diplomas, for example, yeah. every year to those kids, and I hear about, I've watched them grow as well. And same thing with young musicians, because we're still doing those things that we used to do at the club, but we're doing them in, in the summer only. And and the bankruptcy practice, even. I mean. Literally, there's just a handful of lawyers in the entire Texas panhandle that do any of that work. And it's those numbers seem to be getting smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. There's, there is something about my personality and maybe a flaw uh, that has caused me to take on those, those uh, challenges. And, and honestly, I've never felt like I, I've known it's been hard and difficult, but I've not ever felt cheated uh, of of my time okay i mean that's i get so much more back from what i've been doing than than i ever dreamed that's not why i'm doing it but that's certainly what happens that's nice so this is an ad for attorney dean boyd but it's also a personal endorsement my son owen was in a pretty bad wreck at texas a&m right after we dropped him off for his sophomore year It wasn't his fault, but he got broadsided by another driver and it rolled his car. Owen climbed out the sunroof and he walked away from it and we are so grateful for that. But his car was totaled and Owen was left with a shoulder injury. One of our first calls was to Dean Boyd's office. Now Dean had been a guest on this podcast back in 2019. I knew his story, but it wasn't until Owen became a client that we really understood what he does and how meaningful it is. Working with his office was amazing. They treated Owen right. They answered our questions. They made the process seamless. 
and they were able to negotiate a settlement that covered our son's medical bills and satisfied all of us. For us as parents, Dean's office was a lifeline during a really stressful period. So I can't say enough good things about the law office of attorney Dean Boyd. If you've been hurt in a wreck, call him at 806-242-3333 or visit deanboyd.com. I'm thankful for Dean Boyd, and I'm thankful for his support of the Hey Amarillo podcast. Okay, I'm back with Patrick Swindell. Patrick, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its Pioneer Town collection includes custom-crafted teller cages from the Panhandle Bank uh, from Panhandle, Texas, and it, those date back to 1908. So you can see that, experience it, touch it, uh, learn more at panhandleplains.org. All right, when you think of the Amarillo area 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Well, I, I you know, I hope for growth um, in all aspects, you know, population Growth and what we're seeing right now, I think, is just wonderful. Which is the uh, the infrastructure, the roads, the the loop, and, mm-hmm. and and all of that just make it much easier to get around in. And uh, I guess a growth in economic benefit to everyone. Okay, raising the the tide for all who live here. Okay, because I I think it's needed. Yeah, I agree, and I I think all these infrastructure headaches right now are sort of positioning us to be able to handle that growth or to continue that growth as opposed to let's wait and build the roads after all the people come and then everybody's everybody's upset. Yeah, I, I actually watched that happen in Fort Worth. You know, they didn't have a uh, – the, the loop around Fort Worth, 810, was in terrible shape in some parts of the city. And, it, and in, in some parts of the city, there was no access road and it was <laughs> only two lanes. So the city outgrew that before they finally change that. And I'm glad to see we're getting ahead of the game yeah, on that. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Empty convenience stores, probably. Okay. Empty ones like uh, Toot and Totem builds a new big Toot and Totem on the corner, and it, it sort of leaves the the smaller one that was in the, the middle of the block. Right, and, and not necessarily very aesthetically pleasing. Right. So, yeah. I would say it's interesting. We've got so many uh, convenience stores, period, uh, you know, not just with Toot and Totem and Pack-A-Sack, but all the ones that are coming in. Yeah. It just I just wonder sometimes, is it sustainable? I mean, we are a driving culture, and I, I trust that the people building them have done the, the market research to find <laughs> out if we can sustain it. Let's hope so. We do have a lot, yeah. Okay, what does this area not have enough of? You know, one of the things that has been of enormous interest to me from the very beginning, again, having grown up here, is that we not tear down any more historical buildings. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think that, uh, you know, somebody needs to get behind the Herring Hotel, Mm -hmm. and somebody needs to get behind the uh, Santa Fe Depot. Right. Um, Those buildings need to be preserved. The the Little Liberty Theater. Yeah. Yeah. which might make a good jazz club. I'd, yeah, I'd love to see know. some life in that theater. Uh, even the Crest Building, you know, has, I think it's for sale right now, and it's got so much architectural interest oh, in yeah. it. So. A lot of people don't know this, but there's kind of a network of tunnels under the streets of downtown Amarillo. 
uh, a lot of these buildings were connected. Yeah, the banks. Yeah, yeah. So we need to uh, bring back some of those things uh, to make it uh, more exciting. Uh, but certainly, for heaven's sakes, let's not tear down any more historic buildings. Okay, absolutely agree with that. What's the most underrated thing about living in this area? We are so blessed with so much talent in the arts in Amarillo. Uh, just recently went to the, the new uh, art institute where they have the Sistine Chapel yeah, uh, exhibit. Yeah. In fact, I'm working there tonight. So, But, uh, you know, it's exciting, but people don't, I'm always surprised when I talk to someone and they say, what is that? Where is mm-hmm. it? I've not, I didn't know anything about that. Well, we've just got more than our fair share of talented people in music and art and all of the arts. Uh, and it needs to be supported. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, at your break, Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. It, that place is incredible. Yeah. So. Okay. What's your favorite local music venue? As someone who's, I presume you've played in a lot of different places. There are a lot of dive bars, and those are not necessarily where the jazz musicians are going to go, but what, what's your favorite place to play? Well, actually, uh, I really enjoyed playing at the Golden Light Cantina. Okay. Uh, it's it's a great venue. It's a great music venue. They, they you know, they provide the, for, for us, they provide the sound equipment and mm-hmm. the sound man that runs that, which is, which is a huge thing uh, for us in live music, but... It, it's just it's just the right size, and during those warmer months, they open up the garage door, right. door kind of, and and open up the sound, so to speak. I I would have to say that right now is probably one of my favorite places. Now we play a lot for l- much larger groups at Amarillo College, and during June jazz, right. that's that's always a favorite. Uh, I think we had roughly eight hundred to nine hundred people, I guess, at our show this June. So, so those would be the two. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? My favorite local restaurant would have to be OHMS. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the family, uh, I have connections with the family. I'm not related to them, uh, but they feel like family to yeah, me. Yeah. Well, I think the Fullers are like family for a whole yeah, lot of people right. who go to OHMS. But the, the Ketting family is, mm-hmm. you know, that's, uh, Mary was Ketting and, uh, they're the, also the ones that own Plains Builders and they're just, just seems like they've, they've been a part of my life for 25, 30 years. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite building in Amarillo? We talked about some already, but uh, mm-hmm. do you have one? I do. Uh, I'd, I'd have to say it's the Barfield Hotel. Okay. I actually, uh, this is kind of a interesting involvement that I had in that. Before the construction or renovation started, I actually was hired to file a Chapter 11 bankruptcy to stop a foreclosure on that building. Oh, really? All right. So, you know, I feel... You feel, feel like you made it happen. I feel <laughs> like I helped that along. Yeah, okay. That's that's good to know. Um, mm-hmm. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? We go there quite often, actually, because, you know, w- when somebody has never been here before, mm-hmm. but they all know about the Big Texan, so we always take them. So... I, I haven't been recently, but uh, as a matter of fact, I was there on my birthday this last really? year. Free Boy, prime for rib. my free prime rib, yeah. yeah. That's a good enough reason to go. Yeah, and we had, I don't know, we had about 10 or 15 other people that came to celebrate my birthday, so it was, it was good. Okay. That concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? 
other than Ascension Academy, I guess what I would say is uh, that I've started a live music venue at Wellington Square Courtyard, and uh, we we have musicians there every Thursday uh, from seven to nine uh, in July and August. And it looks like we're going to extend one week into September okay. this year to raise some funds for the music fraternity at WT. They're going to do a, a big band uh, concert that night. But, you know, it's it's uh, $15 a head. Kids 10 and under are free. And you bring your own chair, your right. own beverage, and your own food. And sit sit in the courtyard, which is which blocks the wind. Yeah, it's really nice. Shades the area. There. And it's just, it's a great, great time. Okay, that's a great endorsement. Patrick Swindell, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Patrick for the interview. You can learn more about his legal practice at bankruptcyattorneyamorello.com. The music at Wellington Square Courtyard Series continues every Thursday night, so put that on your radar. Thanks to Attorney Dean Boyd, to Lazy Boy Home Furnishings, and to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting Hey Amarello. And thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Katie Linger, Jason Burr, Wes Reeves, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 312. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>